Mormon Stories Podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to Mormon Stories are fully tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonstories.org. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure you probably listen, listen, but I, I was able to interview Dr. Michael Coe, uh, the Yale anthropologist or archaeologist a few weeks back, and he's kind of a Mesoamerican expert, and right. he loves Mormons, and he loves Mormonism, and he probably knows more about Mormonism than many Mormons I know, including myself, um, but he, but he didn't, you know, he, he had a view of the Book of Mormon, which you know, basically, from his point of view, he didn't see a lot of ancient, you know, Mesoamerica in in the Book of Mormon. But what he did say is that Joseph Smith was one of the greatest men who ever lived. <laughs> hmm. Kind of the, the Harold Bloom position. Yeah, I thought that was cool. But he, I think he meant it. Like he said it with a smile on his face. You know. Yeah. Yeah. He, he didn't. He didn't say he's one of the. He, he said he's not just one of the greatest, greatest religious leaders in America or greatest religious leaders. He's one of the greatest men who's ever lived. So I thought that was kind of interesting, um, I, if I'm remembering it correctly. Um, okay, so I have to jump back, and I don't know how to segue this, or if there's, if this is a good point to segue this into uh, the crisis of faith discussion where you that you may have had. I don't even know that story, but I was reading in um, People of Paradox something that you wrote and it ties to what you just cl- what you just said which is uh, this is on page 222 of uh, people of paradox it says lds doctrine as a whole is rooted inescapably in history its claims to divine authority and restored truth are entirely dependent on the narratives of lds origins without an uncompromising belief in joseph smith's literal visitation by god and heavenly angels verbally communicating and physically transmitting to him ancient records and priesthood keys, and without verifiable evidence of a continuing conduit linking Joseph's successors to God, a God who personally directs the continuing work of the restoration. And here's the part I put five stars by in my margins. Mormonism would utterly lose its claim to be the unique institutional form of the one true gospel. What this means in practice is that challenges to orthodox accounts of the church's past strike at the very heart of the faith. Now, why was I, why was I, um, uh, oh, and I'll go, you go on in 223 to write, um, since the historical reality of ancient Nephites and gold plates constitute the evidence of Joseph's prophetic calling and the actual visitations of resurrected beings are the foundation of his priesthood authority, History, not theological plausibility, spiritual appeal, or even fruits of godliness, is the foundation of Mormonism. And this strikes me as, this reminds me of Gordon B. Hinckley, who basically asserted the church is either everything it claims to be, or it's the biggest fraud perpetrated upon mankind. And, you know, I have this perception that someone like you, who, who is still an active a believing member of the church would like not want to push that point. <laughs> I, I would expect you to kind of go, oh, it's kind of a James Fowler stage five, you know, it's not about the plates, it's about the message, and it's not about the, you know, the historical, you know, it's not about the historic, historicity of the Book of Mormon, it's about what the message is, because you, you, you're like, you're like facing down, you're like standing up to the challenge of what where Mormonism is most vulnerable, but you're not backing down from that. And I'm I'm expecting you to hedge <laughs> or to waffle or to kind of nuance or soft step. And you're just going right at it, both here in our conversation and in your book. And I don't get that. Well let me just let me try to clarify what I am and what I'm not saying. Because okay. I think this position that I've staked out and that I also repeat in much more detail in by the hand of Mormon is I think one of the most misunderstood positions that I've tried to defend. For example, Massimo Intervenier, the, the great Catholic uh, scholar of, of modern religions, reviewed my book by the Hand of Mormon and repeat, referred to that same argument that you've just rehearsed. And he said, Terrell Givens is a very impolite writer. 
Um, no, no. Because, because he, t- he takes this as being dogmatic and is trying to shut down compromise and detente. Well, let me clarify. No, I didn't, take, I didn't take it that way at all, just for the record. Well, but go well, ahead. Go well, ahead. What, I, what I mean is, you know, insofar as you're trying to force somebody into an either-or, you know, there's something a little bit George Bush-like about this, right? You're for us or against us. Right. But I'm not, I'm not stating that as my position or my interpretation. The point I'm trying to make is that the way Mormonism has constructed itself creates that dichotomy. Because Joseph himself made those historical events the foundation of his claims to authority. And the one thing that differentiated Mormonism from most other restorationist movements was that question of authority. How do we know that Mormons really have the authority? Well, they only have a, an authority different from any other biblical-based religion if real people actually conveyed that authority to them in the way Joseph Smith described. So he's the one that put all those eggs in that basket. I think that's that's what I'm trying to say. And to try to dehistoricize Mormonism is like trying to dehistoricize Christianity. I mean... If you say, well, whether Christ literally resurrected from the dead or not is immaterial, Hmm. there are very few Christians that would go that far. And yet, whether or not he resurrected from the dead is not a matter of spiritual belief. It's a matter of historical fact. He did or he did not. And you can't escape, right, the historical rootedness of that core fundamental belief. And in the same way, and, and I mean, this, if, if you even listen to how testimonies are born today, what, what, what testimonies consist of is assent to intellectual propositions. Yeah. I mean, nobody stands up in sacrament meeting, and this I lament, I'm, I'm not praising this, but nobody stands up and says, I just want to bear my testimony that I've been born again. I want to bear my testimony that I've experienced the second birth. I want to bear my testimony of, of how I've experienced the atonement in my life. Very seldom would you hear those kinds of things. What you hear is, I testify that, right, in a, on a spring day in 1820, Joseph Smith experienced these things he described. Or that, you know, the Book of Mormon came forth in this particular way according to these, you know, details. So, Mormon faith has become intellectualized because it's tied to this history, but that's a function of its self-conceiving. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense, but a good friend of a good mutual friend of ours once said that not all things that are true are useful and i guess what i'm saying is that um like yeah it's true that 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 mormonism's truthfulness it's either true or false but but that's not always helpful to intellectuals to well, people who are thinking no Go it ahead. is but but i also I, you know let me emphasize that that doesn't mean that Everything that has been claimed for the historical record is equally important or essential. You know, exactly when Joseph got the priesthood or exactly, you know, the order or sequence in which things happened or the specific wording of revelations and as they unfolded or occurred. You know, I, I think there are, you know, we all know anybody who's, who's spent any time at all in church history knows that there are, you know, thousands of distortions, evasions, conflations, misquotations that are, that, that are part of the Mormon historical right, narrative that we have been telling ourselves. But my point is that the essentials, right, can't, it seems to me that they can't be compromised without Mormonism imploding. And I think if you want to look for a, a historical parallel, you know, the president of the community of Christ, yeah. um, he, he, you know, he gave a talk in Kirtland in which he said, theology constructed on history is perilous. And so he gave a talk explaining why they have self-consciously, deliberately moved away from those historical claims. And my response is, well, it hasn't worked very well. <laughs> How's that working for you? <laughs> so, so, and and it, it's, it's because... You know, you, 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 you can't make it work with Mormonism. You can make it work with other traditions that maybe don't have as well documented uh, a period of origination or that don't set out to found their core principles on historical events. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true that the church can't, the church has to, I mean, the church is, the LDS church is doing the right thing. 
by st- if its goal is maintaining its membership, maintaining a vibrancy, um, and I'm and I know it's sincere as well, but it's doing the right thing to stand up and boldly back its history. I think I think the brethren are much more smart and savvy than many intellectuals give them credit for. In addition to them being sincere, but but retrenching as as uh, Armin Moss would put it is clearly the right move if, if the LDS church wants to survive in the 21st century. But the problem that I'm, that, that this is the main thing I'm excited to talk to you about is that m- the vast majority of thinking, thoughtful, well-read intellectual Mormons that I've met, and maybe it's a biased uh, subselection, um, when they do gather the data, when they do look at the historical record, when they do try to piece it all together, uh, the church ceases, the church's historical narrative ceases to be a credible one. And you are standing here as one of these anomalies, as one along with Richard Bushman, and I guess Daniel Peterson and others, who knows more than most of us, and yet still wants to view the LDS record as credible. And that's what I don't understand. And I want to hold you up as an example of someone who's found a way to do that. And I want you to tell us as much as you can about how. And that doesn't that doesn't mean now you gotta go and tell me where your testimony's rooted. But like, did you ever pass through that dark night of the soul where you're like polyandry and peep stones and you know, uh, horses, like, was that in North Carolina or when was that? Or did you? Well, you know, I, have had different kinds of, uh, of challenges to my convictions. I had one experience in the early 1990s when I was on a trip in Africa and a colleague was swimming and, um, out in the ocean and was drowning. And I attempted to to go out and bring her back and we both got caught in a current carried out and uh, had a pretty traumatic near drowning experience as close to a near-death experience as I think one can have and not actually pass through death it was uh, it was traumatic it was harrowing it was uh, profoundly disturbing and unsettling in, in, in many ways because it didn't follow the narrative that we read about in the unsigned. <laughs> you know, there weren't heavenly choirs there waiting to usher me across the veil. There wasn't a sense of peace or help or heavenly assistance. Uh, I felt like I confronted a, a darkness and a terror of annihilation. And, you know, it was it was only, only somebody who's gone through that experience can fully appreciate what that was. And it caused a very profound reassessment on my part when I actually was able to make it back to shore and after I was revived and and brought around. And I spent a long time, days and weeks and even months after that time, reflecting on on what had happened and the meaning of that and reassessing what what really do I know? What certainties Mm -hmm. can I really rest upon in my spiritual life? And Mm. I think what it caused in my life was a reorientation in many ways from that point forward. I became less, I think, preoccupied in my own life with the particularities of doctrine and dogma and more concerned with the general question of, of, you know, what do we know? What can I say with unshakable conviction that I know to be true about this universe and my place in it? And there grew from that time forward in me, I think, a profounder appreciation for the the capacity of the human spirit to recognize truth and beauty and goodness in the larger world. I became much fonder of the poem that Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote, which he talks about Christ playing in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his to the Father, through the features of men's faces. The, to my mind, undeniable reality of our knowledge and recognition that 
things like kindness and love and goodness are of value and deserve to be affirmed and things like hate and betrayal and cruelty are wrong not just because of some evolutionarily inherited sense that pertains to our species that values one thing over another but a sense of the absolute undeniable goodness and evil that exist in the universe i think i became more appreciative of the way in which god and his love are manifest through things like um well conversion narratives and 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 stories and experiences of redemption and just all the good that exists in the world this might all sound very very vague and very touchy-feely but what i'm saying is that i think sometimes we throw out the baby with the bathwater when we confuse a loss of faith in one particular with a loss of faith in the totality of of all that is good and true now that was one experience that i had that reoriented me but as i pursued my work in mormon studies as you say i had to confront virtually every anti-mormon narrative that's ever been written and every seamy and and distasteful underside of the mormon story that is there in the historical record to be found and i think the 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 central insight that i gained and that saw me through was the insight that that god meant it that he really meant it in section 124 of the doctrine and covenants when he said joseph i picked you to show what i can do with the weak things of the earth (laughs) and you know i mean you sometimes hear this almost as a cliche but i think it just hasn't sunk in i see what you're saying he really was seriously flawed he was seriously flawed and and not, not just at the surface, kind of self-deprecating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not in some condescending way that we say, oh, I know Joseph wasn't perfect. Not <laughs> only wasn't he perfect, I mean, he did some downright, you know, <laughs> bad things. and uh, Scandalous. Scandalous. And, and I, I, you know, but then you look back through the Old Testament, right? You think, you know, Jonah fled his calling and he wanted to see God annihilate a whole city. And, and you know, Moses took glory to himself and... Um, and killed an Egyptian, and you know, countless prophets flee their calling. And one, you know, so why do we? And Peter we, and Peter denied Christ. Peter denied Christ, and and so, you know, where did Joseph ever say in the historical record, "I am a good man"? On the contrary, he said, "I'm not a good man." He did. He did. And and I love the fact, you know, that he said, "I I love a man who swears a streak as long as my arm," but isn't one of your <laughs> pious-faced hypocrites. So in many ways, again, he's like Lord Byron, right? Lord Byron was a lecher. He slept with his sister. He was scandalous in a very deliberate, self-conscious way. But, you know, what Lord Byron had to say about his age was, you know, this is the age, like Chesterfield said, that has the, the morals of a dancing master and the manners of a whore. But by golly, I'm a man of integrity, and I will practice what I preach and stand behind what I say. So what I'm saying is, you know, everybody has a different morality, and, you know, I, I, I think to impose or, or to, to put on Joseph Smith the weight of serving as an exemplum of the gospel itself at its best is just utterly inappropriate and wrong-headed. So he wasn't even asking us to do it. He never asked us to do it. He, he warned us away from doing that. And his God never asked us to do it either. His exactly. God was always, always condemning Joseph, right? And, exactly. And then the counterpoint... The counterpoint to section 124, to my mind, is section 49, the the revelation of uh, you know about going to, to teach the, sh- the the Shakers, where God says this very enigmatic thing to Joseph Smith. He says, "I have holy reserved unto myself holy men, that ye know not of." Now, what what a delightfully provocative idea he's planted there in the mind of Joseph that there are holy people that you don't even know about. So they're probably not even in the church. So on the one hand, we're told Joseph isn't meant to be a moral exemplum of anything. And on the other hand, there are men who are moral exemplums who are neither identified as such nor even identified with the church. Now, if you understand that point, which the Lord seems to be at at pains to make, then it seems to me that a tremendous amount 
a tremendous number of the problems that intellectuals have with the church just evaporate. Maybe not all of them, mm. but a lot of them do, and a lot of them did for me. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and you know there is the there is the cliche that the church is perfect, but the members aren't, and that you know Joseph was a prophet, but he wasn't perfect, and and I, I think you've made a compelling case for that, and. Well, I, I'd, go, I'd go further than that. You know, Jean England, you know, wrote that really wonderful essay about why the, you know, the church is as true as the gospel. And, and I, you know, I think he was right. You know, one of my favorite quotations from Brigham Young is the one where he, he, he says, you know, this gospel causes men and women to reveal that which would have slept in their dispositions until they dropped into their graves. Every fault that a person has will be made manifest, that it might be corrected by the gospel. In other words, you know, I take that to mean that it's it's not just this the frail organization, the inept kind of right execution of the gospel plan that causes problems, but that God willingly and knowingly allowed a church to unfold and proceed and organize itself in such a way that it will test and try us. I mean, on the day the church was organized. The very day, April 6, 1830, the Lord says in another revelation, right, that you're going to have to sustain the prophet, and then he invokes two words, with patience and faith. Mm. Now, why would we need patience to support a prophet? Mm -hmm. Unless he's clearly going to do things from time to time that are stupid, that are misguided, that are incomprehensible to us. Um, you know, I, I just think what Brigham Young might have meant is, you're going to bump up against so many rough edges and so many human flaws in this church that you're going to have every opportunity that you could possibly desire to exercise mercy and forgiveness. Mm. So you stand with, with Eugene England in saying that the church is a great way to forge our temperaments and character and soul by learning not only the virtues, but also to deal with the, the complexities and the frailties of the church. Absolutely. And I think the institution. You know, we don't fully appreciate as Mormons. Do you realize that we are the only Christian church left that still organizes geographically? I mean, right. some some do ostensibly, right? The Catholic Church, you're supposed to have your parishes, but, you know, everybody shops around. Why would that be? Why would this be the only church organized that way? Well, mm -hmm. I, think, I think it's to replicate the experience of family. It's to give you relatives that you can't run away from. <laughs> <laughs> it, it forces us to deal with the most... Right? Difficult yeah. personalities, right? Sitting yeah. next to us in the pew week after week. Yeah, and it makes it so you're challenged instead of just slinging together a buffet that may not be providing you with the best nutrients, you know? Yeah. You know, my wife is really fond of remembering the, the, the analogy that the Savior made to the gospel as a net. And you have to think, you know, what does a net bring in with it? Well, yeah, it brings in a couple of choice sea fish. But it also brings in rusty license plates and rubber boots <laughs> and garbage and dead fish, mm -hmm. and that's what the, that's what the church gathers in, right? Mm -hmm. We're a hospital for the spiritually sick. What do, what do we expect to find around us, you know? Right. Or right. in our past. Okay. Well, I have to. So, was there a time where you were where you were questioning if there were gold plates in your adulthood, where you were questioning? The, the credibility of the three and the eight witnesses where you were taken back by, you know, the polyandry and, and, you know, Joseph's denial, you know, where you looked at the book of Mormon and you, and you read the things about horses and steel and, and, uh, geography and, and DNA and where you're like, Oh my goodness, these are credible, you know, just like BH Roberts that you, yeah. you so yeah. unflinchingly, uh, mentioned in People of Paradox, B.H. Roberts clearly felt like the the criticisms, the archaeological, anthropological, historical criticisms of the Book of Mormon were uh, credible. Yeah. It, did you ever have to deal with all that? Well, I don't think it ever came to a head at any one particular point. I think B.H. Roberts was a wonderful role model for me, and I, I would think he should be for many. Because if you look back at B.H. Roberts, he manifested absolute intellectual integrity, right? Here are the problems. I'm not going to run away from them. Yeah. But with hindsight now of 100 years, we can look and see that one of B.H. Roberts' problems 
was that he operated throughout on the totally wrong-headed assumption that the Book of Mormon claimed to be a history of the entire Western Hemisphere. Uh, but because he came by it honestly, because that's what every prophet, seer, and revelator from Joseph to, let's say, Gordon B. Hinckley encouraged us to think, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, that's it's an absolutely ridiculous notion. And as John Sorensen and others have pointed out, it's nowhere suggested or intimated that that's the case in the Book of Mormon itself. In fact, a careful reading of the Book of Mormon suggests quite the opposite, that the Book of Mormon peoples inhabited a very right restricted portion of land. So most of B.H. Roberts' problems, like, you know, how could you have this plurality of Indian languages that developed, right, in just a, a millennia or two? Well, the Book of Mormon isn't claiming that all Indian languages come from Hebrew. So all you have to do is extrapolate from your own case and say, okay, what kind of assumptions, what kind of a paradigm am I operating within that is also wrong-headed and erroneous? So I think it, it, it actually instills a kind of intellectual humility that makes it easier to deal with cognitive dissonance and to recognize that there are going to be discrepancies and tensions between hmm. my faith and the sense I'm able to make at any given moment of the totality of this picture. But I would say that the sum total of the problems that I have seen and continue to see with the Book of Mormon don't outweigh what, to my mind, are the very powerful and indisputable evidences, indications in its favor as, a, as an authentic historical record. Man, man. Okay, well, I'm... So, first of all, I'm stunned that you haven't had this this sort of dark night of the soul crisis of intellectual faith in sort of one big sweeping moment. But I believe you. So, so let's go back. This is going to seem a little bit... Um, I don't know. If it, I hope it doesn't seem overwhelming or too ambitious, but I would love to just, you know, and I'm doing this. I, I want, you know, we talked about this before. You you had an NPR reporter who just wouldn't let you alone about the translation process. <laughs> yeah. Talk about that real quick, because that's not what I want to do here. Well, yeah, it was supposed to be like a I don't know, ten or fifteen minute interview about uh, Joseph Smith and Mormonism, and once the, this interviewer got on the subject of the Urim and Thummim just wouldn't let go what, what did they look like how did he use them what did he see and you know my answer was we don't know we don't know <laughs> you know a few speculations but we don't know but they were obsessed with that question we couldn't move beyond it yeah and and, and i'm not going to be doing that and i'm not um looking to do any gotcha stuff i i, I seriously am you know i i share your view of the universe and of there being something there, the spark of meaning and truth and love, I share that. I have not lost that. And, and that's the extent to which I still consider, consider myself a believer. What I struggle with is anything that tries to establish shape or form beyond that. And so I would, I would love to probe your beliefs as a way to model a possibility of informed thoughtful belief in the 21st century and i i can't believe you're willing to take the questions but can we can we jump in sure all right so god for you like the mormon god is this anthropomorphic well it's gods first of all it's it's, it's at least a, a god the father and a god the mother it's an anthropomorphic being that probably was like us you know human at one point God is married to at least one, if not multiple spouses, and God is defying the theodicy, uh, all-powerful, maybe, or maybe not, depending on your views, all-loving and good, um, and uh, what's, the third, what's the third leg on the stool of the theodicy? All-powerful, all-loving, and what? All-present. Oh, oh, theodicy? No, it would just be all-powerful and all-loving. And if he's all-powerful and all-loving, then how can he allow... Then how is there evil? That's the third peg. Right. So, so how do you... What is your belief in God? Like, how do you, how do you shape it, given the theodicy, in it, you know, alone? Okay, I'm glad you asked this, because to my mind, this is Mormonism's strongest suit. And this is what I find both intellectually compelling and exciting, but I also find it profoundly spiritually appealing you know all you have to do is is the most cursory review of the history of christian theology and you confront time and time again a god who is the absolute embodiment of evil i mean he 
he right arbitrarily consigns untold billions of, of people to hell. He operates by caprice and whim. Church fathers from Tertullian to Augustine to, to Aquinas all believe that part of the joy of heaven will be watching the suffering of the damned. Um, I if, right. if, if that is God, I reject him. But even the Old Testament God is just... I have or no even interest. the Old Testament I have no te- I have no interest in that God. I do not see that God... You know, there's this argument that, um, that the people prior to Christ were just ignorant and Stone Age foolish, and so God had to treat them really harshly and wipe them out at a moment's notice without regret, babies and animals included. You know, the whole, even the notion of a flood where God just goes, oops, made a mistake, let's reboot and kill everybody, animals, yeah. you know, yeah. like, I don't even want to sign up for that, not even interested. So what would be the absolute precondition for a theology or a religious system that you could embrace? Well, the first precondition would be God would have to be the embodiment of real compassion. Yeah, love. Yeah. And Historians of theology have said in writing that in the 19th century, no theologian around espoused belief in a passable deity, mm-hmm. a, a God capable of emotion. Yeah. And yet, what is Joseph Smith revealing in the 1830s mm-hmm. with the Book of Moses and Enoch's confrontation with a God? who weeps three times in his interaction with God. He asks, how is it thou canst weep? This is the most magnificent and beautiful and powerful contribution that Joseph Smith made to the world of theology. And he made it a century before the rest of the Christian world begins to catch on, with very few exceptions. Today, everybody's talking about the suffering God. But Joseph Smith is is teaching not just a suffering God and a feeling God, but as my wife Fiona continues to remind me, a vulnerable God, a God who was willing to risk and jeopardize his own peace and happiness by by creating, as Francis Bacon said, hostages to fortune, right? Making himself a hostage to fortune by, in some ways, tying his happiness to that of his 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 children, his creation. So when you say suffering God, suffering at the pain that he sees in mankind. Absolutely. In the world. And you see you see traces of that even in right, even in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges, there's that wonderful reference where we're told that the the Lord's soul was grieved for the misery of his people. But that doesn't come through very often. But that's the essence of Joseph Smith's God. A, a suffering, vulnerable God. If Joseph Smith had made no single other contribution, if he'd never produced the Book of Mormon, I would still follow as a disciple of the religion founded on that one idea. Mm, Yeah. And so if we start with that, now, what what I find a little bit ironic and, and perhaps misguided in contemporary efforts at detente with other religious groups is this preoccupation mm. that Mormonism has with the evangelicals. Right, right. And yet, if you look at what's happening in the new atheism, it seems to me that there's a fascinating opening there that hasn't been exploited. Even as hardcore an atheist as Richard Dawkins has said in the public record, I could contemplate the possibility of a god who is just a super-evolved human. Mm-hmm. Um, numerous philosophers, oddly enough, have affirmed their belief in the human soul. Um, John McTaggart, McTaggart would be one example. But deny the god of the creeds. And what do you get in King Follett? You get a theology which is entirely compatible with naturalism. Right? There's just this sense of a kind of evolutionary process that pervades the universe. There's this eternally existent intelligence. And eventually, one of these intelligences progresses to the point, this is both in King Follett and then John Witsow really articulates it even more fully in 1915, mm-hmm. when he says that, that God right, develops out of this pre-existent intelligence finds himself a being of absolute love and intelligence 
and wants to impart to those intelligences surrounding him the possibility of that same glorified and joyful condition. I mean, what could be a more beautiful narrative of of God, his nature, his origin, and his relationship to mankind? You know, one of the most poignant questions in the Old Testament is when Job asks, what is man that thou should set thine heart upon him? Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, what, a, what a beautiful question. Mm-hmm. Why, and, 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 you know, the answer in King Follett is, he chooses to, because we've always existed with him. Now, the church has never officially endorsed, right, the doctrine, the theology of King Follett. Mm-hmm. It's gone back and forth and back and forth. It's in the manual. It's out of the manual. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't have a firm conviction that that's how we can understand the origin of God or his nature. But it makes more sense to me than the God of any Christian creed. And it comports full well both with my sense of the universe as I experience it and with my logical intuition as to how a God can emerge in the context of a universe that we understand in modern scientific terms. Mm-hmm. And what's your um, so what's your answer to the question if if God is all powerful then why can't he stop you know child rape and genocide you know I don't think that's never struck me as a as a as a as a as a real problem. I mean, I, I believe, as C.S. Lewis does, C.S. Lewis said, hell is the greatest testament to human freedom. That's a rather perverse way to phrase it, maybe. But, you know, it's I... Because kind of, it's kind of uh, dismissive or yeah, casual. Yeah, but all he means by that is that, you know, that we, we inhabit a tragic universe. Mormons haven't come to terms with that. But, you know, Hegel got it right. We inhabit a tragic universe. A tragic universe is one that is inhabited by a multiplicity of of abs of, of absolutes of values that are all worthy of affirmation, but that come into violent collision and contestation. And tragedy is what happens when you see the good coming into conflict with the good. And God's desire to save the entire human family comes into conflict with his desire to affirm the principle of human agency. And something has to lose out in that process. And God decides that he is going to affirm agency above anything else. And the consequence is, hell exists if we choose it. But here's the other remarkable thing about Mormonism. That is, it's just, it's, it, and, and it saddens me that, that Mormons haven't caught hold of the power and the beauty of this aspect of their theology. Mm-hmm. You know, Mormons are, ironically, this is just perversely ironic. Mormons are criticized for being exclusionist, right? We shut down the temple to all except those who have recommends, and we right. talk, you got to be a Mormon. No, Mormons are the most inclusivist theological system that exists in the Christian world, separate and apart from Unitarian Universalists themselves. Right. Right. In Joseph Smith's vision, everybody is going to be saved, except that handful who absolutely refuse to accept the conditions of their salvation. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's it's the it just it strikes me that that this is the, the you know the, the the greatest selling point so to speak of Mormonism is a God who says as we're told right DNC eighty eight that beautiful verse where we're told that everybody will receive that which they are willing to receive so you know all the universalists in Joseph's day were writing about this. They were saying, yeah, it just doesn't make sense that God would condemn you if you're not baptized or you were born a pagan. But they didn't know how to reconcile the need for a savior with that desire to universalize salvation. And Joseph comes along and reveals, well, this whole plan of vicarious salvation, work for the dead, teaching in the gospel in the spirit world. I mean... Not, God is not only the most compassionate, but he's the most generous and inclusive God of any creedal system. It's just marvelous to me. So I I love that. And so let me just ask you a couple of follow-up questions. So is it fair to say that the Mormon God isn't all-powerful in that there are certain laws that he slash she has to operate under, that, that if he were to violate them, he would cease to be God? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think this is ever clarified in Mormon doctrine. There are two schools of opinion, but I believe that what Joseph Smith was saying, and it's it's in my mind the most coherent account of the universe, is that God is God because he is 
in full harmony with those laws that exist in the universe. He's not the author of those laws. He's the one who perfectly abides them. And so, right. of course, he's not, he's not all-powerful, only in the sense that he can do all things that are possible within that framework of law. Right. And so, and so the, the, the eight-year-old girl that's raped and killed, um, what Mormonism says is that uh, this is a long eternity and there will be opportunities for growth and development and this life is just one sliver of uh, an eternity of development. Is that yeah, and, yeah, and the cost of that development is appalling. And there's no way to just dismiss it by saying, oh, well, you know, she'll, she'll feel okay in the eternities. <laughs> I mean, it's beyond my personal capacity to fully feel the empathy for that girl that she deserves. Right. And I believe that one very possible reason why a third of the pre-existent intelligences rebelled at Christ's plan is because they said, I can't live in a world where I have to countenance the rape of eight-year-old girls. Wow, that's that's a beautiful way to empathize for the one-third that got cast out, huh? But then, what type of God casts out a third? <laughs> I don't, I don't think he casts them out. I think there again, you, you know, that's being filtered through the language and world vision of the prophet speaking. I think, I think those thirds simply rejected and repudiated their participation in that universe that God was presiding over, and so. I don't, I don't think he casts anybody out. Okay, okay. ourselves. Okay. Um, so I think, I think I get that. Um, what about the inefficiency of a thousand years of temple work? Like, why not God just kind of wave a wand and if you accept Christ or whatever, you can come. You don't have to have all these people doing all this temple work. For all these people that may or may not accept, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Does that I, seem just grossly inefficient? Yeah, it seems terribly inefficient to me. And you know, I, I, by no means have I made my peace with every aspect of Mormon doctrine. Okay. I'm still struggling. You know, I, I feel like I've there have been two questions that have preoccupied me in the last decade. One, one is the question of the, the mystery of faith. How can we be morally responsible for believing? And I think I worked my way through that. And, and that was the, the talk I gave on lightning out of heaven. And the second question that's preoccupied me is, why does Mother Teresa have to be baptized? Right. You know? I yeah. mean, I, I don't believe for a moment <laughs> that if we cross the veil, we're going to find, you know, the jerk who was our neighbor in heaven because he did his home teaching, but Mother Teresa's in spirit prison because, you know, she hasn't been baptized yet. <laughs> I, that's, that's not how it's going to work. <laughs> but I do believe that there is something real and efficacious and holy about temple ordinances. Mm -hmm. I believe that's the principal reason for which the church as an institution exists and why it deserves my loyalty. Do you find value in temple service? I do. Even I, though it can be boring as heck? Oh, it's more boring than heck. But when I have participated in sealing work in particular, I have felt that something real is transpiring, something that has eternal and transcendent value, that we're not just going through empty forms and rituals. Hmm. I find much of the process inelegant mm -hmm. and, 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 and deadening mm -hmm. and tedious, but that's how most of the gospel is. You know, I, I think that, <laughs> that, that for me, for me, a paradigm that I keep going back to is is Isaiah chapter 9. I mean, here's Isaiah, who's one of the most boring, right? I mean, that's, right, the the hell that you have to wade through to get past, right, the Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon. It's, you're right, everybody knows that. And so here's Isaiah, and he's talking about, you know, the Midianites this, and in Egypt this, and, and, and you know, grinding the faces. And then suddenly, if you're not paying attention, you miss it. And we get this anthem to the Christ, right? The, the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace. And if you blink, you missed it. That's how the gospel works. We're mired in banality. And there are these eruptions of the divine into our lives that occur from moment to moment. You know, that's how life works. Yeah, that's life. <laughs> that's life. And so that's the gospel. Yeah. 
Okay. You, you mentioned lightning from heaven. Is that is that something you had spoke about on this podcast, or is that just? I that's a talk I gave at BYU back in two thousand four. It was a forum I gave. And basically, what was the main point? Well, I just didn't want to miss the point you were making. Well, I was supposed to be talking about Joseph Smith, but I used it as an excuse to talk about faith. Uh huh. And the point that I tried to make is that we all understand what physical compulsion is. We all understand how incompatible that is with human freedom. But it's my belief that intellectual compulsion works in an analogous way. You are not free to believe or disbelieve the law of gravity. It's there, the evidence is so abundant that you are intellectually compelled to accept it. Mm -hmm. So as a result, there's no virtue that attaches to your belief in that law. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if I were to offer you a million dollars to believe in the Easter Bunny, you wouldn't be able to do it. So in both of these cases, belief seems to operate outside of the moral sphere. We don't have control. We don't have oh that we can exercise to believe or to disbelieve. I see. But what I'm saying is that faith is what operates or unfolds in a middle ground between the compulsion to affirm and the compulsion to deny. And I believe that God has structured our lives here on this earth in such a way that when it comes to those issues of eternal import, we have to be free to affirm or to deny. And therefore, there has to be a balance of evidence, both for the veracity of the gospel and against it. It's essential to God's divine purposes and to the flowering of freedom itself, I believe, that there have to be compelling reasons to reject the Book of Mormon, to reject Joseph as a prophet, to reject the existence of God himself. But they have to exist alongside compelling reasons to affirm those things. Only in those circumstances can we call upon our will and choose to believe or not to believe. And I think in those moments, our choice reflects the most important things about us, our mm -hmm. souls, what mm -hmm. we love, what is it that we choose to affirm hmm. and and so that's how i think faith operates like those two wolves and you choose the wolf you feed the wolf that you know is lovely and virtuous right yeah, yeah. yeah. well okay so i love that like that's beautiful that resonates with me and it invokes for me the you know abrahamic sacrificial god i just don't like abrahamic tests that that's <laughs> that's bringing us back to the god i'm not i'm not so much in favor of do you have yeah. this, do you have a response? Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. I want you, I'm gonna tell you to kill your son, you know, just to see if you'll believe me. Yeah, you know, you know It's like that's what Jim Jones did. He's like, drink this Kool-Aid if you believe in me. And eventually it was poisonous, you know? Yeah. You know, when we we use the expression Abrahamic test a lot, but you know, we can mean very different things by that. You know, Kierkegaard's analysis is suggests that an Abrahamic test is one where we suspend the ethical, where we obey an authority at the cost to our own conscience. Yeah, I don't like that. And yeah, I, I'm not sure that that's, that's, that's a virtuous decision. So I, I'm not sure, just like I haven't made my peace with polygamy. I, don't, I believe that in some sense that was an Abrahamic test. And, and to go back to your, your earlier reference to God, no, I don't believe God has more than one wife. I don't believe polygamy has any place in the eternal worlds. Oh, wow. I believe it was uh, a, a temporary provocation that unfolded in, in, in this dispensation and has no future. Okay. Uh, but what was God testing by commanding or allowing that principle to prevail? I'm not sure. I don't know. Hmm. Well, I, I, you know, I do love the idea that belief is is exists outside the the moral realm, because I don't like my disbelieving brothers and sisters being disrespected or judged. 
Right. And, well, well, I you know what what I described was an ideal circumstance, right? A a, a balance of evidence, pro and contra. Yeah, yeah. But, but Earth is an uneven playing field, and depending on heredity and environment and upbringing and intellectual proclivities and what we happen to be exposed to, the possibility of choosing faith in any one context might not really be plausible. And that's why, you know, I can't ever judge and I can't, you know, you can't conclude anything from a person's decision to believe or not believe. But, but I think that, that God is striving to create that balance so that at some point in your life, there will really be a choice that you are free to make. Gotcha. Well, this, this discussion of, um, of Abraham takes us to the second, you know, big set of questions or at least area that's, that, that gets people down. And that's just about Christ himself. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's really popular these days to kind of deconstruct the New Testament and the Old Testament. I, I know of many Jewish rabbis who don't even believe that Moses ever existed anymore because we can't find any credible evidence to support, you know, Moses's narrative. And um, the historicity of the Bible, some some find the Bible, not, not, not the fact that Jerusalem or Bethlehem ever existed, but some question the historicity of the biblical texts, you know, even more than they do the Book of Mormon, which is kind of incomprehensible to those who struggle. But I'll start with this question just about Abraham again. Why does God need to pick the best person, the most righteous, virtuous person, and then inflict pain upon that person as the only means of sort of balancing out the universal calculus of, of pain and, and sin. You know, God creates us as sinful. Uh, I, I'm saying some assumptions that you can say are faulty assumptions, but I'll just, I'll tell you my perception. You know, God creates us as evil or as wicked or sinful, and then he holds it against us when we sin to the point where he has to punish someone to make all that right, who doesn't deserve to be punished. And, um, and if we don't believe in that person, then we're all going to hell. Like that's not, that's not again, the type of God that I want. It seems inefficient. And then this whole idea that Jesus in one moment had to suffer, bleed, you know, for every sin, not only every sin that's ever been committed, but 2,000 years before I was ever even contemplated mortally, he's suffering for my sins too and everybody else's. Like it becomes meaningless at some point. Like, you know, it, he's doing so much there that it's like it, it goes into the realm of like superheroes. Like I can't yeah. – and I don't mean to be disrespectful. I'm just saying that like uh, it's hard to like – wrap your brain around all that and make sense of it and not feel like it's either brutal or unfair or just too ambitious or complicated. Tell us how you view Christ. His, did he really exist? Is the new Testament even credible and how you think about the atonement? If it's not the way I described. Okay. Let me begin. In five minutes. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let me begin with a caveat, which is is not just um, pro forma, but I, I, I really mean this caveat very earnestly. One of my favorite Cambridge Platonists, John Smith, said that the only thing which can enable us to know and understand the things of God is a principle of holiness within us. So I don't believe that any of my intellectual efforts to make sense of the atonement are going to be sufficient. Mm -hmm. and, and I can't pretend to understand it, but I'll tell you what sense I make of it at this point in my life. I do believe in a historical Jesus who was born of a virgin and who was the son of God and who died to atone for the sins of the world. And here's how I understand the need for that atonement and how it operated. As pre-existent intelligences, we had progressed to the point where we were ready to become embodied and to work our way through the next stage of our eternal development. And that required our being cut off 
from the presence of God. I like how Brigham Young put it. He said that the purpose of life is to learn to, be, to become as independent in our sphere as God is in his. So to really develop virtue and those genuine attributes of godliness, right? We had to develop them independently, so we're cut off from God. But in that context, the only way that we are going to learn to love that which is good and virtuous is by experiencing the consequences of that which is evil and pernicious. So sin becomes a necessary part of the learning process. But because of the sanctity of the principle of agency, we have to be willing, in fact, we have to be guaranteed that we will receive the consequences of our actions. Freedom doesn't, isn't real freedom if we choose but don't get what we chose. Right? We understand as children, we, we call it unfair if we do our homework but we don't get the ice cream at the end that we were promised. Mm-hmm. But it's equally unfair if we don't do the homework and do get the ice cream. Right. Not because of justice. I think what the scriptures call justice, and, and this is, a, to my mind, a really important point about that term. What the scriptures call justice is what we would call, from a different perspective, the working out of agency the guarantee of freedom. So God knows that we're going to choose wrongly. We're going to sin. We're going to violate law. We have to suffer the consequences. But given the our own immature spiritual status, given the uneven playing field that is this life, given the impossibility as untutored young spirits making the correct choice every time, Sin is going to be inevitable and, as I said, necessary to the process. And sin has a way of becoming self-replicating and leading us on a downward spiral. The more we sin, the more cut off from spiritual things we are. The more ingrained that habit becomes, the more it becomes a part of our character. Once we enter into that path of sin, it becomes virtually impossible to elevate ourselves out of it. There are a couple of things that can help. Um, Clement of Alexandria said that all repentance begins with a kind of faint recollection that we once lived a better life in a better place. So he thought intimations of the pre-existence were were the initial spur. Either that or just the recognition at some point that sin isn't getting us what we wanted leads us to want to repent. And repentance within this framework of agency and atonement simply means choosing again. But in order to choose again, the consequences of those wrong choices have to unfold. And that's the point at which Christ simply says, I am willing to vicariously experience the consequences of those choices that you made. Now, that's my understanding of atonement. I would call it something like consequential substitution. It's not that he's appeasing the demands of justice. It's that he is affirming the the reality and the continuity of human freedom by saying i will stand in your stead but let those consequences unfold so that freedom and agency are validated so the principle of agency is intact and then i will allow you to re-choose and we keep re-choosing until we get it right we can only become sanctified not through the grace of Christ, because right, we're told specifically that, that it's only by being subject to law that sanctification can, can, can take place. It's only by being charitable that we can actually become charitable. It's only by acting in godlike ways that we can become godlike. What grace does, it's the free gift of Christ's, of Christ's sacrifice that enables us to choose and choose and choose until we ourselves have perfected ourselves and have come to embody those qualities of, of godliness. The mechanism by which Christ experiences that pain, as I understand Doctrine and Covenant section 19, is that he, in our stead, suffers the devastating alienation of the spirit, which is the consequence of sin. And that's why on the cross he feels that total abandonment of God. That's the the feeling of forsakenness, is that he experiences what otherwise we would have. To my mind, 
that makes sense. It's consistent with scriptures. It's an illustration of an unimaginable offering of generosity and love. And behind it all emerges the importance and the priority of human freedom and choice in the great plan of salvation. So is he suffering for all the sins, like in some mathematical way that have ever been committed? You know, you know I think some I, proportionally mathematical way. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that. I, I know that many, you know, Talmud and others have have referred to a, uh, what strikes me as a kind of calculus, as if you could add up all of the, uh, you know, the 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 elements of pain that are experienced and and quantitatively sum them and then he experiences that degree i don't i don't i don't i don't don't think there's anybody holding scales over the whole process and measuring i think he experienced the fullest extent of alienation from god which is utter spiritual darkness and you know in some in some way that was an infinite price to pay but I don't think it makes sense or enhances our worshipfulness to try to equate it with a mathematical model. Right. For me, it, it kind of spoils it. So that's nice to hear a different, a different point of view. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Stories. Music today was provided by the Saber Rattlers. Check them out at saber-rattlers.com. Mormon Stories logo was generously donated by StudioCase.com. Thanks for listening. Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy wend your way. Though hard to you this journey may appear, grace shall be as your day tis better far for us to strive our useless cares from us to drive to the sand joy your hearts will swell Journey's through Happy day